welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss unparalleled practices and unrivaled resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Here today with an episode from Todd Scasewater, founder of Exegetical Tools, co-founder of Fontis Press, and visitor to Kansas City this week. Todd, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Man, it's good to have you up here to get some barbecue. Yes, Casey Barbecue is quite wonderful. It is. The uh, Burnt In Burger Q39. Yes. Did you enjoy it? It was one of the best sandwiches I've had in quite a long time. That's a pretty good... Highly recommend Was it unparalleled? I can't say that. I can't say that. What other Burnt In Burger have you had? Well, that's true. It's I've, an unparalleled and unrivaled... I have never had a burger with burnt ends on top. That's true. Okay. So as far as that goes, it was an unparalleled. I'm just going to take that as a win, and we're going to move on. Done. We're here today to talk about Bible translation. This is not something that we've never talked about, but it's not something that we've ever just kind of like got into, right? Which is interesting because you're working now with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I am. It's true. Okay. Tell us really briefly a little bit about what you're going to be doing with Wycliffe. I know we've talked about it before, but just to refresh our audience. Really briefly. Okay. In 20 minutes, what I'll be doing with Wycliffe. <laughs> no, this is not a pitch. Okay. Yeah. 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Uh, I... One of Wycliffe's main organizational partners is a school called Dallas International University. It's in Dallas, obviously. And it used to be called the Graduate Institute of Applied Linguistics, name changed this year. So they put out about 30% of Western-trained Bible translation workers, according to a recent estimate done by all the schools wow. who have programs. And uh, I'm going to be teaching there biblical studies, biblical backgrounds, Greek discourse analysis, things like that. Um, as part of kind of the Bible side of things, the school trains in Bible, linguistics, and missions. So I'm going to be teaching Bible as a Wycliffe missionary at Dallas International University. That's fantastic. So what drew you, just so another 20 seconds here, to this kind of teaching rather than maybe a, a more traditional seminary or university setting? Yeah, that um, there is a definitely a long answer to that. The short answer is that um, I've always been interested in using my interest in biblical studies and languages for missions and for the purpose of uh, helping believers around the world get discipled better and more effectively, getting tools around the world. And um, you know, to, you can go overseas and teach, and there are opportunities to do that. There are tons and tons of opportunities to do that. Um, generally you got to find the funding and raise support and all that, all that kind of thing. And, uh, so you just got to find a position in an organization that you feel comfortable with. You really feel God calling you to. And when we called Wycliffe, it was one of those things. There were a bunch of circumstances in that month that led us to believe that this was where God was really leading us to serve. And it was an instant fit when I visited the campus, met the Dean, some of the professors, um, it just seemed like a perfect fit for what I'm interested in, the, the blend of biblical studies, linguistics, missions, pastoral heart, that sort of thing. Um, it all just was very exciting, and my wife and I were on the same page, and we felt like this is where God wanted us to serve. And so um, they Wycliffe brought up the school. I already knew about the school from my time in Dallas, so it was kind of another confirmation. Maybe this was where God was leading us. And um, Wycliffe, has, as an organization, they're 76 or 77 years old now. So they've been involved in 1,000 completed New Testaments, at least. So very long track record, very great organization so far. I've, I've been very appreciative of their, uh, their care for their members and their efficiency, their professionalism, and just their care 
for getting people scripture around the world. All right. I'm going to pass around a bucket for people to sign decision cards now. Uh, but no, man, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners will be interested to learn more about that. Lots of ways to do that. Um, even just on the Exegetical Tools website, there will be a link in the show notes to this episode. I'd really encourage people to check it out. But we are going to talk about Bible translation somewhat broadly. We're going to narrow in a little bit um, on this question of formal and functional translations. So first off, sketch for me for those many people are already they've been there they've done that they've, they've learned all about this others are kind of a little bit curious about those terms really briefly sketch for me the landscape here of thought and then if you want to give an addendum or any corrections to that thinking let me know yeah so i'll say off the top, uh, at the front here i mean there are some a lot of newer works and newer theories are coming out so even the terminology of functional equivalency mm-hmm. dynamic equivalency uh, versus formal that even a lot of people aren't very happy with that terminology mm-hmm. nowadays. So there, there's new paradigms out there, but in the main English translations, especially have, have followed the past few decades, this kind of theory that uh, formal equi- equivalency means that your translation is trying to get across the structure of the original language and um, more word for word. You're, you're not looking at the sentence as a whole and trying to get across the meaning, but you're trying to, to figure out what does this word mean in this context and translate it literally. And if a prepositional phrase comes first in the Greek, you're going to, in English, put that prepositional phrase first, if you can. And I think that's honestly what gives a lot of Bible translations that kind of reverence, that, that feel of reverence, mm-hmm. that almost like it's uh, imitating KJV language, but it's more updated. So mm-hmm. something like an RSV or an ESV or an NASB, um, it's it's not entirely colloquial. It doesn't have, it has phrases out of order because it's trying to imitate the structures of the original language. So in that sense, a lot of people like it because it, it makes scripture sound different from the way that you and I are talking right now. And, and if God is speaking in scripture, then certainly God would speak better than our low debased language. Right? So in that sense, um, I like myself to read a good formal equivalence translation um, because it does give me that sense of difference. God sounds different than I do. But uh, the case for functional and or dynamic equivalence is that God intends to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And in English, we have so many translations that it's, it's not as big of a deal because if you don't like one translation that comes out, you can go get another one. There's a hundred. There's over a hundred English translations, but this really becomes a very important issue when you're translating into another language for the first time. For example, so people who have never had the Bible in their language, they've never studied it, they've never read it for themselves. What do you want to get those people? Do you want to get them um, scripture in language that they're going to need a Bible dictionary to understand, or? language that sounds unnatural to them so that um, for me as growing up in the Bible Belt, I like that rever- that reverence that um, a, a formal equivalence translation gives me because God sounds different. But to them, that makes God sound different. That might be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of issues that you kind of have to think through here. Um, and uh, one of the, of course, you know that there, there's some translations that like to suggest they are better than others. Because either we're more formal or we're more functional. Um, and, and or then, just perfectly in the middle. Or is there one perfectly right in the middle? Um, is there 
so is this a one, you know, kind of a two-dimensional axis on which right in the middle there is a perfect balance? And um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Maybe we just have to leave that open. We'll just leave that open for now. So for you've now. already hinted that maybe these aren't always the best categories to think about. Um, and so we'll get here in a minute to the linguistic part of that question, right? Um, and I know linguistics, obviously, as we've already heard from what you're about to go do and what you're interested in and many of the works that exegetical tools and Fauna's Press are putting out. Um, we know that that's uh, going to be a big element. And your thought on this is going to just be helpful for us to be considering. We want to ask what do linguists say about these things. Really briefly, if someone is just trying to wade into this, are functional and formal good categories for them to hang their hat on for the moment? Or would you suggest anything different? Uh, I, I think if you are a student, if you're a pastor, the concepts, um, you know, I, th- I think this really became prominent. I, I, I can't remember, maybe around the 70s or so. But um, there are linguists probably listening right now who are just banging their heads on the yep. wall because they're like, come on, dude. But I think for I, in general terms of thinking about Bible translation, and, and especially as a pastor explaining Bible translations to your people in your church, mm-hmm. these are great categories. Um, they're, they're ways because this is how Bible translators have thought, uh, English translation committees for decades. So that's the thought that they've been using. And so as we explain, why is the NIV the way it is? Why does it explain things? Well, we got to explain to them how committees work, how Bible translation committees think and the NIV is trying to strike this balance between make it more colloquial but not so colloquial that it just sounds debased or um, like the average Joe in a back alley talking about his dinner Um, and then why does the ESV um, why does it have language the way it does And, and part of that too is that most English Bible translations are revisions of previous versions and what was the translation philosophy of the RSV because that's where the ESV came from, a revision of the RSV. And what was the translation philosophy of the ASV? What was the translation philosophy of the KJV? You know, there's there's these genealogies to translations, and so understanding previous ones and how we got to where we are now, being able to explain that to people in our church, these are good categories. And honestly, that two-dimensional line where you have um, formal equivalence on the left and functional or dynamic on the right, and then you place the translations all along that path. That's that's helpful for people in your church just to see. I've, I've had people in my churches that I've been in um, that they've told me like, oh, I, I saw one of these charts and it was the most helpful thing I've ever seen because I, I never understood why there's so many translations and how are they different. And now I get it. Like one's just, you know, more paraphrastic or it's getting across the meaning of whole sentences, whereas other ones are trying to get more word for word. And that's a very crude way of putting it, but for most people who have no linguistic background and most people who have no biblical studies background either, that's going to be very helpful for them. Okay, that's good. So we're going to we're gonna slowly level up to, okay, what's the really the linguistic conversation happening here? Because there are people listening right now who are already like, okay, that's what I want to listen into. But there are other people who are still just like, I haven't really thought about these things before, and we want to make sure that we're covering some good ground here. So... Um, if those are decent enough categories, right, for, um, you know, those who are not doing all their Bible reading or exegesis in the original languages, we would say, hey, we have resources to help you do that. You should probably give it a shot, and we're going to point you to them also in the show notes. But 
if you're a pastor, you're a student, you're mostly thinking, okay, I, I'm, I'm learning the languages right now maybe, but I'm not really quite there. I'm still relying heavily on English version, versions. With this variety out there, um, and maybe I'm just setting you up for a question that I, everyone can maybe guess the answer to, should they go look for a formal version? Should they go look for a functional version? Or what should they do if they're using English versions alongside their original language studies? How should they use the different kinds? How about I'll just put it that way? Use them all and use them frequently. Okay, glad we figured it out. Done. Um, yeah, there are so many translations, and one of my favorite things about Bible works, which uh, RIP, right? That's right. We're hoping that someone, if you're out there and you have a lot of money, please buy Bible Works and revive it. <laughs> um, but one, I, I still use it because it still works and will for probably a decade, and then we'll all have to find something different. But one of the things that you can do in Bible Works and probably in accordance in Logos, I'm sure, is that you can pick any number of versions to in your browse window. And so I can have open Genesis 1.1, and I can have it show me uh, 20 different English versions all vertically stacked. And I can also have the the Septuagint. I can have the Hebrew. I can have the Aramaic Targums if I want. I can have Spanish, French, German, and any other language that I might kind of know. So in my browse window, I have over 20 Bible versions. And when I'm studying, uh, yeah, I can go back and look at the Greek and I can look at the Hebrew. But even with, you know, even in English, I can be talking to someone I know more than anybody, like my wife, for instance, and she can say something, and I know more about her than anyone else, and yet I can still misunderstand what she's saying, because I'm thinking, I have a frame of reference for what she's said already, I'm expecting something else, I misunderstand it. Now, I can do the same thing with Greek, no matter how well I know Greek, no matter how much I've exegeted a passage, there could always possibly be another meaning to that that I didn't think about or understand, so to have 20 English versions ranging in their translation philosophy from crazy literal like Young's literal translation, which is so wooden that it would crack if you left it outside, to, um, you know, something like, um, I don't know if you want to go all the way to the message, but if you put the message in there, then go for it. Um, you have that whole range, and you're able to just look at a verse and say, how do, how do these translations deal with this verse? Mm-hmm. And you can maybe find a possible meaning that you wouldn't have been able to find yourself even with the original languages. So in a sense, in that sense, translations are commentaries. I don't like the idea of saying that translations are not Scripture because they are. are. But in that sense, they are commentaries. They're resources to help you understand the possible meanings of a verse or a passage and that you can consult and you can bounce ideas off back and forth and every translation is valuable for you to use in that sense. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's a helpful caveat, too, that we're not trying to engender distrust in someone's copy of the scriptures in an English translation, but we also don't want to have blind adherence to a translation over against the actual Word of God, right? We want to we say, okay, I want to recognize that there's committees and there's philosophies about how we translate these things. But there's going to be a level of clarity in there. Um, Yeah, the way I think about it is if I were speaking to someone who didn't speak English and I had five different translators and I said something to them and all five of them translated, but they all translated it differently because they all spoke a slightly different dialect of a language, they're all telling them what I said. And that person 
has five different versions of what I've said, but I said those things. We'll return to this great conversation in just a moment, but first I'd like to tell you just a little about today's featured resource. This episode of Tool Talk is sponsored by Immerse, the Reading Bible, a six-volume reading Bible created with one goal in mind, to provide the best reading experience possible. If you want to read large swaths of Scripture, then you need a Bible made for reading without chapter and verse numbers, headings, or footnotes. You need to check out Immerse, the Reading Bible, from Tyndall House Publishers and the Institute for Bible Reading. Learn more about Immerse at ImmerseBible.com, linked in the show notes for this episode. And now, back to our conversation. You're being interviewed now. What is this the, has never happened. What is the weirdest Bible version you've ever read? The weirdest Bible the weirdest. version I've yeah. ever read. I'll get to that. Okay, my answer. <laughs> Google it. Word on the Street Bible. Oh, yeah. Word on is the Street's weird. Have you seen it? I have. Oh, it's yeah, fantastic. My, my buddy had it growing up. It is up. the best. And it's cool. It's not, it's, they didn't even get a whole new He Testament, owned a right? physical copy? Yeah, he had a physical copy of the Word on the Street. That's fantastic. I mean, I like the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible just purely because it, the Hawaiian Pigeon is, yeah. is a fun language. I have a copy of that. It's That's like great. a close enough language to English that I can have fun with it. <laughs> But it's not like I, I couldn't even remotely assess whether or not it's a good pigeon translation, right? Word um, on the street Bible. Word on the street. Okay. They paid me a lot of money to get that in there. They didn't pay you anything. <laughs> if they did, it belongs to me. This is my podcast. <laughs> um, so, but, okay, but my, my, my caveat is, well, okay, I won't, I won't, I won't get into it. But okay. um, I just remember when I was like a first-year Greek student the first time. So undergrad, and then I, you know, became a, another first year Greek student in my MDiv because oh, I, awful. oh, it was it was awful, but it did give me a leg up when I actually started doing it in my MDiv, right? Um, but I had like a an interlinear Bible, and like, mm. and oh man, um, yeah, that's that's when you start to recognize no one's that formal because these are different languages that have different structures. Sure. And, you know, maybe we can do some, you know, duty to that if we think if that's our philosophy or whatever. Um, or, you know, there are multiple people who've served on the committees of very different translations and they recognize that there's value in both. And so we want to admit that, too. Um, so, yeah, I just remember being a, a freshman in college and reading my um, interlinear Bible and going, it's weird how this is structured, but it kind of at least gave me some frame of thought for how different Greek was and some of the basic Sure. Uh, sentence structure, and then I actually, you know, learned Greek, or at least began the lifelong journey. Of course, yeah. Of learning Greek, or whatever I'm supposed to say. Um, you get to bring your Greek Bible to church now. I do get and have to do people that. look at you strangely, uh, unless it's just on your uh, app on your phone. Then everybody thinks you're on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So that also works. You're not. Not on Twitter <laughs> during church. church. Was that just me? Yeah, just you. Oh. Well, yeah, probably not just you, but. In this room, just you. Who's on Twitter, church? True story. If you text me while I'm in a church service and I'm in that church service, I'm not going to respond to you because I'm at church. You're talking about me, aren't you? Well, I'm actually talking about people at <laughs> chapel, but you have done that to I, me too. I, I, I have done that to you. But you complimented yes. my facial hair. So. That's true, yeah. And so I was really tempted to respond to you because well, I, I did see it. I hadn't seen you in months. So I come back and you look like Spurgeon. Man, that is exactly what I'm going for. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. So let's get into the linguistic thing here. Okay. You're about to go down to DIU, and you're going to train people at a, ling- a linguistics-oriented school who yep. are going to get on the field 
and they have to make this call. And this is not one of multiple versions in this American Bible buffet. It is their only copy of the scriptures in their language. The stakes are raised. We can't mess around. We can't, you know, wax eloquent about, well, formal and functional are both good. They're on the ground. They've got to do it. And our listeners who are maybe interested in Bible translation, maybe they're doing Bible translation, or at least they're interested in linguistics, what do they need to know? Yeah, it's really interesting. So there was um, on, I think it was on Nerdy Language Majors, Facebook, Facebook group. Facebook group. Join it. You should join. Love it. Someone gave the example of a people group where um, you have the, in Revelation, you know, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Well, I, I guess in some culture, according to this person, if that were happening, they're standing at the door knocking, they are ready to drag you out and fight you. So it's it's a hostile thing. It's not a it's not a thing of invitation. So when you come to translate this passage, um, the options are: Do you translate it as is? I stand at the door, knock, and just say, "Well, they just need to get some biblical training and figure it out." Mm-hmm. Or do you translate it in a way that renders the meaning of what John meant there, mm-hmm. or Jesus? Um, in their culture, in their language, so that you basically get the same sense across, even if what you're saying is totally different. And um, there's a there's a fun little quiz that we have uh, from Wycliffe that someone at Wycliffe made. It's got like 15 idioms from, um, was it like pigeon in, in Papua New Guinea, I think? Hmm. So, and one of them is like, um, I forget, it's like I knock, I hit at my ears or something, it means I'm jealous. Uh, it's probably not the right one, but there, there's a lot of them. They're just very, they're not intuitive. And so you take the quiz. I think I got like a 30% yeah. because you're, you're like, oh, I can probably figure this out. You know, like my belly is full or my belly is happy means something. And they use these different parts of the bodies to express their emotions. So um, when you go to translate the Bible and someone is, you know, in the scripture, it says God is jealous. Are you going to say that God hits his ears? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to use some other expression? Well, if there is another expression, then you have a legitimate choice. If there's no other way to say someone is jealous other than that idiom, then you, you've got to use the idiom. You have to express it in a way that the local people understand. And I've heard of several cases where a Bible translation was done, and it was done in such a way that the language was not natural to the people. And as a result, the people were not interest, interested in reading it. So you're, you go through these decades of work, you go through um, tons of money that people are contributing for these missionaries to do this work, and at the end of the day, no one wants to read the Bible because it's not a language they understand. And it goes back again to that sense in English, we are so rich with being surrounded by Scripture, having the Bible um, on our apps, on our phones, our computers, on our shelves, uh, on billboards when we drive through Oklahoma. <laughs> um you know, so we're surrounded by Scripture, and that sense that God sounds different than me is comforting to me. But that's not comforting to everybody. And so, different organizations will approach translation philosophy differently. Um, as far as I know about the, the translation philosophy with most of the Wycliffe projects, they tend to be more um, toward the, NIV, the NLT's type of philosophy, where you're rendering. Um, you look at the sense of a whole sentence and you try to figure out how would we express the semantics of this and even some of the pragmatic effects as well, if there are some of those. How would you express this in the target language? And so you're not given a wooden word-for-word translation. 
And you're also not trying to strike some kind of optimal balance. You're, you're really just trying to say, um, if God were speaking to these people today, would he speak to them in a language they would understand? Um, but the danger, obviously, is that as you're doing that, you're now, uh, there's always commentary involved, there's always interpretation involved. So you don't want to get so paraphrastic that you start adding elements in and uh, adding meaning. So there, there, is, there are a lot of factors involved. But um, honestly, that, that ends up, I think, from my experience as I've been learning, that there are organizations handle it differently. And mm-hmm. some organizations disagree on how to do it. And at the end of the day, I think the best thing for people to do is to read some good books on translation philosophy, on linguistics, to understand linguistic principles, and um, to, to kind of come to their own conclusions on these kind of things. And in English, just to appreciate the richness of the number of variety of translations that we have. I've already mentioned Immerse, the reading Bible. But if you're a pastor or small group leader, you ought to know about Immerse, the Bible reading experience. It's designed to help communities read through large portions of Scripture together, like the entire New Testament, in just eight weeks and engage in weekly discussion. Readers can also watch an introductory video and then listen along with audio of each day's reading online. I've been tremendously blessed approaching Scripture in this way, and I think this is a fantastic help. If you want your church or small group to grow in their grasp of the big picture of God's Word, then you should consider Immerse, the Bible reading experience. Learn more about Immerse at ImmerseBible.com, linked in the show notes for this episode. And now back to our conversation. And I mean, that brings a good point to that these are, um, even if you go with the main purpose of Bible translation, you're going as a missionary in hopes that people are converted, churches are planted, the ascendant Christ gifts pastor teachers to those churches, right? So um, even in the work of Bible translation and wanting individual believers or interested parties in that culture to have a Bible, um, you also want them to have a pastor, right? And so these things are going to work together. Give me three minutes of the most high-dollar, top-shelf linguistic theory as it applies to uh, translation theory, formal, functional. Oh, man. Get there. Do it. I I think the... One of the most helpful things is probably something I'm not catching on to very well, which is, uh, well, two things, information structure and discourse analysis, which are kind of overlap. But discourse analysis looks at how language works above the level of the sentence. So how do paragraphs fit together? How do they cohere? What are people doing with their language? How do people structure uh, an entire discourse to accomplish purposes? And... Um, Different languages do those things differently. Different languages have different particles to signal different things. They structure verbs differently. To, so if you, if, if you can understand the discourse structure of different languages, like how do you do things in Greek and how do you do things in Bokum Chi, for example, like a tribal language, a Mayan dialect, then you can try to translate with that in mind. Try to, try to get across the discourse structure, not just one sentence at a time, in the same way that we don't want to go one word at a time. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go one sentence at a time, and we don't want to go one paragraph at a time because there are larger, higher-level signals in Greek, mm-hmm. in other languages that signal how paragraphs fit together, signal how uh, two parts of a discourse fit together. And if we can understand how to do that in other languages, we can have better translations. Secondly, information structure is um, something that I've read a lot on and still am terrible at. 
But <laughs> essentially, um, there's these idea of like, uh, there's given and new information. So uh, the following sentences that I will speak in this podcast will be dependent. The way I structure those sentences will be dependent on the, what we've already said and on what Meta. I believe. Meta. And on what I believe that you believe, uh, what we share in common. And there, so the way that information is unpacked in a discourse depends on a lot of different things. Context, shared knowledge, cognitive processes, that sort of thing. And information structure looks different in different languages. There's different ways of fronting things or putting things at the end of sentences for emphasis. And if something is given or shared, then you might put it in a certain place. If it's a presupposition, then you might put it first or put it last. So um, those sorts of things are also helpful for Bible translators because then you're able to get across the discourse structure. You're able to get across the pragmatics, which is how an author is using his words, that sort of thing. And we want to get across not just the semantics of the scriptures, but also the pragmatics, the different dimensions of language in translation. And so there's a lot of linguistic theory out there to read about. Discourse analysis and information structure are great. I think uh, kind of the standard textbook on information structure is in the Cambridge Textbooks in Linguistics series. I don't know the author's name, but CTL, uh, all of those are pretty fantastic works. All right. All right. Well, I think this is uh, helpful for a variety of um, different people in our audience. I hope it's helpful at least. I know that Bible translation is obviously on the brain for you, but I mean, it's never going to not be a question in English speaking Christian contexts. At least I don't foresee a situation in which we're not thinking about how do we evaluate new Bible translations? How do we recommend Bible translations? How do we think about that? Um, but especially even as we're considering um, not just Bible translation, but I'm thinking about preaching and teaching. I mean, you just illustrated the need for discourse analysis, not just to translate as an English speaker to translate that Koine Greek into whatever other language, but how am I going to understand what's being explained here and how am I going to then recontextualize and communicate it to this audience for this purpose. So I think that's helpful. I know discourse analysis is also on the brain this week. Yes, Finishing sir. up a project for Fontes Press. Um, just really briefly, what's the name of the project? What were you working on this week? Discourse analysis of the New Testament writings. It's an edited volume, uh, edited by myself. Uh, I've been working on the Colossians and Ephesians chapters, mm-hmm. and I uh, co-authored the the Matthew chapter with David Clark and writing the intro and um, one of the professors here Todd Shipman is contributing the Luke chapter yeah got a lot of uh, a chapter by Longacre in there a few of his students have contributed so it's got a discourse analysis of every New Testament writing from a different methodology uh, whatever methodology the author uses which gives us the opportunity to see the pros and cons of each Mm -hmm. of the different methodologies while also giving us a great analysis that's useful for students and preachers and scholars. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. It'll be a good thing for any new Testament preacher, student scholar to have on the shelf, I think, and just have a resource for this particular text that I'm working on. Um, it's also kind of a gauntlet for someone else to go, actually, I like this methodology the best. And I'm going to do the entire new Testament that way. Yes. Maybe by the time you're 60, you'll have written yours. Maybe so. We'll yeah. see what happens. Well, this week I'll have finished two, so just, just a few more that's New Testament true. books to go, you right? Just, that's that's a good point. You're yeah. so close. I mean, what's a few more the, What's a few more books? I think the funny thing is my methodology is slightly different in all three chapters. Oh, good. So, <laughs> part of it depends on the writing. 
that's that's uh, we have very little pragmatic information about Ephesians, for example, because hmm. we have no idea really why he, what prompted him to write it. Mm-hmm. Who exactly did he send it to? Ephesus or Asia Minor? A circular letter? Uh, what's yeah. going on with Paul at the time? So less pragmatic information. Got to focus more on semantics and Colossians. Uh, quite a bit more. Uh, we kind of feel like we know why he wrote it and what's mm-hmm. he attacking and. Yeah. Of course, a lot of mirror reading involved, so issues there. But uh, different methodologies for different yeah. types of literature. Yeah, man, all these things are related. It's great. Well, I think this will be helpful. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.